Hello, this is a prepaid collect call from an inmate at New York State Department of Corrections and Community Supervision. This call is subject to recording and monitoring. To accept charges, press 1. You may start the conversation now. My name is John J. Lennon, contributor for Esquire magazine and the Marshall Project. I'm locked up for selling drugs and committing murder. Been in prison 18 years so far. Got about 10 more to go. New York State prison system identifies me as DIN number 04A0823. So I'm a writer and I'm a prisoner. And this is a collect call from Sing Sing. Mary Blakinger is a staff writer at the Marshall Project. She has been reporting on the COVID crisis in prisons, and I wanted to get more of a national take on what she's been learning. But before that, I wanted to learn a bit more about her. Last November, Carrie Blakinger and I had featured stories in the Washington Post magazine's prison issue. That issue was nominated for a National Magazine Award this year. But an unusual sort of requirement for the contributors was that they had to either have served time or were serving time. And Kerry had served 21 months on a two and a half year sentence for a felony drug possession. So this is a pretty compelling backstory. So first of all, welcome to this I call from Sing Welcome, Carrie Blakinger. Thanks for having me. So this is like a pretty compelling backstory. Can you give us like a quick, before you went to prison, what was life like? And I mean, you were about to graduate from Cornell, right? Yes, I was. I mean, I'd been doing drugs for about 10 years at that point. So I was not your typical Cornell student, I guess would be the best way to put that. But I mean, but backing up before that, I'd grown up as a competitive figure skater and I skated pairs, which is where, you know, the guy like throws you around and it looks all dangerous and shit. And then when my skating career fell apart, I started doing drugs and for about 10 years was using and selling heroin. And then I started school at Rutgers and transferred to Cornell, sort of thought I would get my shit together if I uprooted my life and changed things. And, you know, I still, I mean, I was still depressed and struggling with, you know, mental health issues and, you know, continued using and selling drugs. And then I got arrested in 2010 um, with about six ounces of heroin, which was enough for an A felony at that point. Um, So, Got a drop. I mean, I, I I got a drop down to B and ended up getting two and a half flat. But I was incredibly lucky in terms of the timing of that because that was right after they rolled back the last pieces of Rockefeller. And um, I mean, I could have been if I'd been arrested like I don't know a few years earlier. Um, it, you know, that was enough that it could have gotten fifteen to life. So really yeah, that was about a the timing. That was a pivotal time with the drug laws. You're right. I, I was in prison, and some of my uh, buddies were going back down, getting resentenced, and on uh, on the uh, Rockefeller laws. So, but that was a lot. That's, that's a that's a lot of dope. Six ounces. Of, uh, I mean, so like like you were. I mean, you're in an Ivy League school, and uh, like I guess you have a habit, and I guess you have some customers on the side. This is in upstate New York and Ithaca, right? Yeah, in Ithaca. Um, you know, I mean, I was I was dating someone and we were, you know, using and selling. And um, I mean, we were supporting habits like it's not like we had it's not like we had some stash of money around. And I know that seems like a lot of drugs to be just supporting a habit. But I mean, you know how it is with like when you're 
like when someone's using like you know one one time you know one month you have like all these drugs and all this money and then like you know you're broke and can't eat the next month it's just you know the sort of ebbs and flows of of being in an active addiction so you know it's not like i had been um it's it's not like and i'm not saying this to minimize what i did i mean i'm i mean obviously i had a lot of drugs i'm not trying to minimize that but just to make it add up in terms of how it is that i had all these drugs but was not like rolling in money so, like, let me ask, like, do you get, like, annoyed when the backstory is often injected in an interview? You know, I understand it, but what, you know, one of the things that sort of, that can be frustrating is that I feel like, and I'm sure you can understand this, is that, like, if I, if I, in any interview, like, and this is true for anyone who did time, I imagine, forget to talk about specifically like remorse and that I feel bad for what I did, I will catch flack afterwards. And I mean, oh. I, I get that. Like, I, I, I get that if that's your only exposure to me and you're like, Oh, she never even said she feels bad for what she did. But like, mm. this is a, this is drug possession. And this is, you know, I was arrested in 2010. This is 10 years later. And, mm. you know, I don't think it needs to be, a thing I talk about in every interview. It doesn't mean I don't like feel bad about it. I mean, I think for something like a nonviolent drug conviction, I mean, I probably feel more remorse than I do, did then. Cause you know, then it was all very close to like being actively using and, you know, maybe I, I hadn't been sort of as immersed in the, um, the, the impacts of it, you know, as I am now from like covering it and, and you know, sort of having a lot more interaction with the with the fallout but you know it's just i don't know it's it that that to me is is a thing that's like i you know i feel like this is a a thing that some people expect of anyone who did time and you know it's it's it just isn't always the most germane piece of the story for every single interview 10 years later you know right Right. Especially when you're a staff writer at the Marshall Project, and before that you were at the Houston Chronicle. I mean, I mean, you've 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 like you're like you're a real deal journalist. Like, and it's like, and, and it's you know sometimes it. Um, I, I look when I when we when my editor at the at the Washington Post was telling me about you, and then you know I heard about your name in circles too, and I was like. Um, you know, I, I, I was like, I gotta have her on, and, like, talk about this because a lot of, again, like, I mean, I when I look to the future and I look to like what it's gonna be like, you know, for me, sometimes I like, you know, I, I, you know, I wonder, like, for, like as you say, like you were, you're, you were convicted of a nonviolent, you know, drug offense, and I get it, like, I, I, I there was this this couple that sold for me, and they had, uh, like hundreds of grams of, of, of heroin um, at, at different times. And, I mean, <laughs> they, they, were, they were just fucked up. Like, they were fucked up on drugs. And, and uh, I remember, um, you know, just she, she did it like a, a year or so, uh, the, the girl. And, like, I, I remember she reached out to me all these years later, and she seen, like, a documentary on me. And she, she felt so bad, like, because they – they were casting me as like evil and all this other stuff. And she was just like, 
uh, and one time they had me on tape, and it was just like a, such a chaotic time talking to her about how I slapped her, and and it was just it was just the worst of the times for me, and, and they, they like yeah. wasn't even part of the evidence. They like gleaned that from the evidence pile for the for the documentary, and like put that in there, and, and I was just like, oh my god. And, uh, you know, I remember she had reached out to me recently and she was like, ah, oh, I feel so bad, like, that they did that, like, to you. I mean, and she's reaching out to me, like, and, and saying that. And I was like, well, I feel bad that I did that to you. I'm sorry. And it's just, it was, I say that to just say, it was such a chaotic, you know, life. And um, having gotten away from that, but still being in prison is, well, it's also chaotic. Um, but I yeah. also want to, like, tap into you uh, into, like, like, I wonder sometimes, like, you know, what it's going to be. That's why I asked you that question, like, just about, like, do you get annoyed? Because I imagine I would get annoyed, you know. Um, but, you know, I have to expect that even more because, as I said, I took a man's life. Yeah, I mean, you know, I, I also I also think that it's, it's a learning process, sort of, like, what you what you need to talk about every time. Like there, there are questions that, you know, one way to look at it is to sort of, you know, get annoyed that you're being asked these same questions, but then it's also like, well, I just need to address these things. Otherwise people won't listen to what I say, you know? And I understand that there's like a few boxes I have to check in every interview in order to get people to listen. And it's, it's not as frustrating as it was at some point right. when I was sort of learning these things because you only learn them by the negative feedback when you're like, Oh, but I do feel remorse. I guess I just neglected to say it in this particular interview, you know, and you know, or, you know, or another thing is like that there's, you know, like you, you need to talk about like sentencing disparity, sentencing disparities and like, you know, sort of, there's a few other things that like you, that, I feel like I always need to make sure that I say so that, you know, people don't think I'm overlooking these things. And, you know, as long as you learn to address the things you need to, to make people listen to whatever you want to focus on in that particular interview, you know, it's a, it's a process. So the listeners have heard me give like a weekly update on what's been going on in Sing Sing, but I know you've been doing like a lot of great work. I love you to sort of like broaden the scope a little bit. And you told me on, on, you know, sort of an off the air, uh, you know, chat we had, but fill them in on what's been going on, like in Texas and these other states, you know, right here for me, it's almost like we, we sort of, you know, peak and it's like almost like this new term of herd immunity. Like everyone's like, nobody's wearing a mask. Nobody gives a fuck about that. And it's just like, you know, men have died here and, and it is just like, you know, either you had it or you had it. And now that it's herd immunity, like some of the guys that didn't have it are like sort of blending in and, and almost are in the safety of the communal space of prison. So tell me, tell, tell us some of the things that you've learned. I mean, so that's what's going on at Sing Sing, but perhaps we're, a, we're ahead of other yeah. uh, prisons because, you know, we, we are in Westchester. What's been going on? In terms of, you know, what's going on elsewhere, I mean, I think he's very right that uh, it's different what's going on in, in New York versus Texas or BOP. Texas and BOP are the main places that I'm following. But Texas, it's hard to say what the scope of the problem is here or in BOP because of the lack of testing, uh, which obviously was true in much of the New York prison system as well. But, you know, in some of these Texas prisons, they haven't even had any cases yet. And I'm not going to say we're at the beginning, but we're in the middle. Like, I think we've got a ways to go on this. 
uh, at least in Texas and, and BOP, I mean, the, that's all over the map, like literally physically. So, you know, when, I think we're at, I think it's a, something around 1500 infections as of today. And I mean, that's, just, that's even given that, you know, there's significant under testing. I mean, I, I, I'm hearing from a lot of people who seem to clearly have a number of symptoms and, you know, seem to have it and are not being counted. Um, so, yeah, I mean, I, I think there's a long ways to go. I'm not, I'm not even sure what we can think of in terms of what a death toll looks like in some of, some of these other prison systems. I think it's really heartening though, that, you know, things, things seem to have turned a corner. Cause honestly, I thought it could have been a lot worse. When we think of prison and it's a communal, uh, living space, and like, you know, we're all basically going to get it. That's how I, that's my take here. Um, do you think that's the take of some of the people that you've been talking to? Um, I mean, I think that it's certainly reasonable to think that everyone in prison is going to get it. Uh, you know, you just, you, you just can't socially distance. Um, but I think that the question of herd immunity is, you know, it's, it's actually, I was reading something the other day that it's, it's not clear what immunity looks like in this situation and whether it's possible to get it a second time. Um, so, I mean, I, I guess, I mean, sure. I, I, I imagine that if there's herd immunity that prisons will get to it. Cause yeah, probably everyone's going to get it, but I think it's not clear, you know, if you can get it a second time. So I mean, geez, if you, if you can get it repeatedly, it's just going to keep circulating in prison. Right. Right. Yeah, I mean, that's just some of the concerns of some of the guys in here. There's a guy that I spoke, that I interviewed uh, for, a, uh, for a piece I'm working on now. I don't want to reveal too much, but he is uh, he's still wearing a mask. Like, he sort of cycled through, but he's still wearing a mask. And he's like, uh, you know, I asked him, I'm like, why are you wearing a mask? I mean, you got the antibodies. And he's like, well, I don't There's so many unknowns with this. And, you know, and here we live... Uh, you know, in this space, in this really unknown space. And, um, you know, so that's why he's concerned. And he's, and he's older, he's more responsible. The problem, I think, with a lot of guys that are older in prison is, that unfortunately, there's this, there's a sociological, like, sort of behavioral, like, uh, uh, aspect of prison, right? And perhaps you can um, speak to as well, is where we have younger you know, when you have younger guys, I mean, their, their, their concern is not too much with, uh, you know, coronavirus. Like, like these guys don't have masks on. They're just doing their thing, and like they'll be all right. You know, that's that's a like that's that's the least of their worries. Like in uh, in prison, when they have like they may have some beefs, they may have some you know, there's there's other things on their mind. When you have like the older gentleman that I'm talking to, I mean, that's what's on his mind. I mean, have you had, um, has this component of like, you know, the age difference and, and, and what, you know, what, what that looks like? Have you, has that come up in your reporting, uh, in, in other prisons with some of your sources? Yeah, it's funny. I actually, most of the people that I've talked to, regardless of age, have been kind of concerned at this point. And that wasn't always the case. I mean, I think one of the first people that I asked about this and sort of what hit, you know, how scared he was or wasn't about what was going to happen is a guy who's on death row here in Texas. Um, and, oh, yeah. um, yeah, that was actually, I think the last 
place I went before we all started sheltering in place was death row. <laughs> um, but, you know, because this was on like the 11th of last month, somewhere around there, I went and visited for a story. And I was, you know, interviewing and I asked the the one guy how, you know, if he was nervous and he's in his 40s. And he was like, no, I'm, I'm scared for my lawyers because they're, you know, in their 70s or 80s. Um, oh. That was in mid-March. But then, you know, as things progressed and it came closer and it became apparent that it was going to end up inside the Texas prison system and that, you know, in some cases, younger people can die, uh, you know, then, you know, then now he's expressed a little more concern, like his primary concern is still lawyers. They're still clearly in an age range that they're at higher risk. And, you know, they're the ones handling this case. And, you know, he's he's towards the end of the appeals process. So, you know, he's got very, you know, his life is you know, contingent on these lawyers, um, to a certain extent, obviously. Um, but you know, also, I mean, in terms of like whether younger people are or should be concerned, I mean, I, that two days ago, I think uh, it was, um, I mean, time's blurring. I, I, I don't know. Um, one of the deaths in federal prisons was a 30 year old woman. I mean, she was, she was pregnant. She was in for a nonviolent drug offense, two year sentence for like eight grams of meth. Um, and you know, she was only 30 and she died after having a C-section on a ventilator. So it's not that younger people are immune from, from dying. I mean, obviously they're not immune to it. It's not that it's impossible for younger people to die. It it just, it happens less, but I think people in prison that I've talked to, um, are all realize that this, you're getting some of the worst healthcare you're going to get. So, you know, if any, if, if anyone's going to, uh, be less likely to survive. I mean, a lot of prisoners are kind of like, well, we're not going to, if anyone's going to get bad care, it's going to be us. So I'm, actually, yeah, I'm I mean, surprised the people there aren't more pessimistic about this, honestly. Yeah, I mean, you know, I talked to some of the guys that were treated and were sent out. You know, first, my, you know, I think it's just like we, there's this, this sense of, um, urgency is gone. I mean, urgency is not the sense of doom is gone. It's almost like we've sort of peaked here and uh, we feel that we, maybe we feel like we peaked here because we, it, you know, it sort of hit Westchester first. It got into Sing Sing. It's sort of, I, you know, I got it. I, I kind of just like hunkered down in my cell. I mean, because you know, you're not going to, uh, you know, I got through it and just stayed in my cell. It was just like, and I was on, and they moved me off of a tier to sort of cater to guys that like were having worse symptoms because my, my tier had a set, had a window in the cell. So I'm, I was like moved to like a shitty block with like, like, it's like, you can't breathe in this block. They put me on the, on the fifth tier. I thought it was personal at first. I was like, ah, you're trying to be <laughs> journalist, huh? I'm kind of messing with the, <laughs> there's a, there's a, there's a kind of like a, they're not my biggest fans, like the administration here. So they were moving us all. Like I had the, uh, so they were letting some guys stay in, in the, you know, the sort of privileged block. So I saw the lieutenant and I was like, lieutenant, you, know, you got to sell for uh, Johnny Lennon or what? You know? And he, and he looks at me and I can see him like, I can see him smirking under his mask through his eyes, you know? And he's like, <laughs> he's like, Johnny, you don't want to stay over here. You know? And he is like, you know, <laughs> that's when I said, Oh, you're trying to kill me off. Sure enough. You know, a couple of days later, I got the symptoms. I was up here and I stayed in my cell. I knew hopes really. I mean, I'm not gonna lie. I was scared. Like I, I, after a couple of days of fever, I had like this, uh, 
had food in my locker. I just stayed in, and um, but I had this, this breathing thing. It was like you could not get a gratifying breath, and it, that's scary. Like that's like it's scary when you're when you're like sixty, seventy cells down from the, and you have to like yelp to the guy next to you, like yo, call for me. You know what I mean? And it's like you don't want to do. And you're mixed between pride and. Uh, you know, and then you don't know if it's fucking anxiety or, yeah. you know, um, fucking COVID. And it, it's, it's a bit of both, right? Yeah. And, and then you don't really know because you can't get a fucking test, you know? So it's just like, you know, because you don't have the fever anymore and they'll just send you back. Right. And because you, cause you know that because the guy three sold down for you is exactly what happened to him. So you hunker down and, you know, you, you, you just... Yeah, I, 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 it was at one point where I felt a panic attack coming on, and I was just like, oh, my God. But I really, like, just, you know, just dunk my head, at, like, in, in, in the sink and just, like, sit there and just do some, you know, breathing and just, you know, because the panic attack in a cell is the scariest thing. I mean, I've been standing in the yard. I've been in some pretty hairy, hairy situations throughout my life. The panic attack in a cell is the scariest thing I've ever experienced in my life. Period, and on you know, with, you know, with sort of CNN in the background, with you know, you know, they had, had. I remember at the time they had this fucking like episode on CNN, and the doctors just kept saying, "Like, what are the experiences you're getting?" And like, they people can't breathe, and I'm just like, "Oh my god, let me shut this off." And it's just terrible. It's just like, "Oh my god," it's like a fucking torture chamber. So you you guys have TVs in yourselves? Yes, we do. Yeah. Oh wow! Oh my God! I was about to say I'm so jealous, but that's really never appropriate to say. Um, <laughs> but, but I mean, well, you are, don't be this, jealous of this moment that I experienced. No, but I meant jealous in the sense that, like, none of the I don't think any of the women's prisons had that. I mean, I mean, well, maybe some now, of the cells at Bedford do. Oh, okay. Yeah, Bedford has it now. I think. Um, oh, okay. But, yeah, Albion yeah. didn't, and Taconic didn't yeah. when I was there. But yeah. when did y'all get yeah, TVs? But- Probably, uh, well, you know, Sing Sing got them recently, so they it was they staggered like the uh, release of them. I'm not, I wasn't really a fan of TVs because you dumb. They, I think you know the TV program came out mid nineties in in the in the male prisons in uh, in New York, and um, you know, I just think it dumbs the. I think they. I think the. The prison, it's not like they're like sort of like pinky to their to their side of their lips, like, haha, we're going to keep them stupid. But I think that, you know, it's, it's, a, it's, capaci- it's an incapacitation tool that they know that they will be able to control prisoners with the TV. That I, that I do believe. Oh, totally. And, I, I can't yeah. believe that more prisons haven't figured this out sooner. I mean, it, yeah. it seems like it would simply when you're dealing with all these understaffed prisons it would simply make it easier to you know control people yeah but i'm not a fan of the tv i mean i i often you know have guys uh and then with the tvs and i've written about this before they took out uh like there was this rule with packages like so you you lose your you lose you only get like from home 20 pound packages uh, right so the point is you lose access to getting things from the outside like your your it was a trade off but what they didn't, uh, what, what, what happened was they wouldn't let us get books. Like people couldn't drop off books, and they couldn't. Oh wow, that's through super Amazon. fucked up. Yeah, so I actually wrote about that a couple of years ago in the Guardian, uh, as, uh, as well as some of my other colleagues, uh, Daniel Gross and a New Yorker. He wrote. We sort of because they were trying to 
sort of unify that and just give take away all and just have approved vendors and, and it would it wasn't allowing Amazon to send books and if people want to send somebody a book in prison they, they're going to Amazon they're going to one of these places and they're sending a book and that's the first thing they're going to send you know if you're like some sort of a semi-friend to somebody right you're like I'll send you a book uh, you know they don't you know, some people are skeptical of sending people money for you know various reasons but you couldn't even get a book for so many years so after we wrote those articles in 2017 they over and exposed what was really happening um, they overturned it all and now we could all get books in addition to having TVs, you know, so, so we can get the Amazon books. Anybody listening, you know, you can send me some Amazon books. Uh, no, I'm just kidding. <laughs> but, uh, yes, you can, you can get books from Amazon. And, uh, it was, I'm not saying it was because of my article, but I'm, I'm sure, um, it didn't look good when the, when the governor started getting emails that were like, wait a second, prison is in your, in your state can't get books. Like, <laughs> I, I, I remember that. I for, I forgot that, that that was connected to getting TVs, but I remember when that happened because it was there's a whole bunch yeah. of states that that were doing that around the same time. Um, right. I remember being real like pissed about yeah. yeah. Well, no, but it wasn't always a trade off. Like New York was, but it, wasn't that around the time that like Maryland was it Maryland or one of the there was another state out in on the East Coast there that was doing that. Oh, Maryland was doing it and then Pennsylvania was going to do it in response to some unrest in a few units, I think. They were going to... Um, oh, they said some officers had been exposed to K2 and they were going to, like, restrict oh, all, yeah. the, all the incoming mail and stuff. Um, you know, well, that is, a, that is a crisis in here. We could probably do a whole episode on that uh, in the future. But for now, I do have to run and... Uh, I just want to thank you so much for this. I, I would love to have uh, keep having you on because uh, this is a great conversation, uh, not only for me but hopefully for the listeners too. Thank you so Anytime. much. Anytime. <laughs> yeah, thank you so much for all you know, all your reporting and and uh, to be continued. Okay. Cool. Good talking to you. All right, Gary. Likewise. All right. Goodbye. Bye. And that is a wrap for our Corona update. And just talking to Carrie Blakinger, who's a staff writer at the Marshall Project. And this is another episode of This is a Collect Call from Sing Sing. The caller has hung up.